Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's show is Rosie Andrews, talking about her debut novel, The Leviathan. We'll also hear from Elle McNichol on her new book for children and young adults called Like a Charm. And DJ Taylor chats about his new collection of short stories, Stooky Blues. Rosie, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And this is your debut novel. Has has this been brewing for a long time this novel? Hmm, I would say not um, it was I started writing the novel um, prob- I think it was in about 2019 and it actually came together surprisingly quickly um, compared to what I thought would happen um, but in terms of the themes and some of the content it is some- something that um, I studied quite a long time ago a lot of these um, areas of history so I would say that it's been bubbling away there in the background without necessarily being um, a sort of formed plan for a story which when it came out did so rather quickly. And you must be delighted with the success of it I mean when you were beavering away working on it did you ever allow yourself to imagine this? No (laughs) no I didn't Um, it's such a, a thrill and a surprise that it's got anywhere near publication um let alone having so many people say nice things about it which is um brilliant and it's always a a quite surreal um thing when somebody says you know I've been reading it or I've enjoyed it and and points out that um you know something that they've liked about it and I just find it I'm like oh I actually wrote that (laughs) wow (laughs) well it is great does it does it put more pressure on you somehow for what comes next yeah, I think it does. Um, most of the writers I now talk to, so people who've got their debut novels out this year, they're all going through the same sort of, um, I would almost argue, like a psychological warfare with themselves when it comes to writing a second book, because there is more pressure when you've written a first one, particularly if people have enjoyed it, because you want to provide something that they will enjoy the next time. Um, but you also obviously have to put the, the book first and the story first. Um, so yeah, it's a difficult, it's a different sort of um task than writing a first book. Well let's listen to your first choice of music now. Uh, Is music important to you? To be honest I'm not a a very active listener to music but it is important. It's the sort of thing that again drifts along in the background and I just sometimes think I absolutely love that and then I forget who played it or who sung it. (laughs) (laughs) Well this is an interesting first one. It's the score from the film The Last of the Mohicans. Why this one? It's just utterly beautiful. It's not only one of my favourite films, but I think that this particular piece of music, which I think is a Celtic piece, is so resonant with the themes of the film. It just fits so brilliantly. And it's something that I could listen to and do almost anything. I think it's just a, a really classically beautiful piece. And that was the score from the film The Last of the Mohicans, the first choice of music from our featured guest on Bookmark today, Rosie Andrews. Rosie studied history at Cambridge University before becoming an English teacher. Her debut novel, The Leviathan, came out last month and became an instant Sunday Times bestseller, with Rosie also being named as one of the Observer's 10 Best Debut Novelists of the Year. The Guardian said of The Leviathan, 
The plot is as surprising and sinuously twisting as the legendary sea monster of its title. More than just an entertaining fantasy, the novel offers a lesson about the importance of accepting responsibility. And The Express described it as gloriously dark and packed full of gothic-infused dread. Well, I enjoyed it too, and I will come back to that word, gothic, in just a moment. But Rosie, for people who haven't read the novel, what's it about? The novel is a 17th century um, supernatural mystery. So the sort of um, book that was my, if you like, my comparator when I started writing, it was something like a Diane Setterfield, um, that sort of novelist. And the book is set in the 17th century with uh, a view to um, the English Civil War and a character called Thomas Treadwater, who returns from the English Civil War and finds some disturbing things happening at home. Um, He then has to investigate that and it takes him completely out of his comfort zone into a challenge that he could never have imagined having to face. Indeed, quite a challenge indeed. And the Leviathan of the title, which which does play a key role in the book, that is I was going to say a real mythical creature. I don't know whether you can have these two <laughs> things, but it, it is a mythical, it's a biblical creature. Is that right? Yes, that there are all sorts of roots for that myth. Um, and that's something that the novel has a look at, if you like it, if lightly. But um, the Leviathan, it, I think as a biblical creature and as a, a creature or a concept in political philosophy, it's in both instances a creature of very great power um, and that's central to the themes of the novel it's also in terms of Norse mythology it's there's a connection there to um, if you the what they call the world serpent so it's a sort of encircling chaos beast in um, in the mythologies that I that I looked at for the book and did you always know that you wanted that in the story uh, you know where did that come into your planning So when I started planning the novel, there was more of a lean towards the 17th century witchcraft trials, but it was quite quickly that I realised that I wanted to do something slightly different with it. Um, And this idea started to come through quite strongly as I wrote the novel. And why is it? What intrigues you about the Leviathan? I think it's the same thing that intrigues me about many mythological ideas and legends. It's the kind of um, almost interconnectedness of the myths that go behind them and where that idea might have sprung from and what kept it particularly um, alive. And I think with regards to the 17th century in England at that time, it was a time when people were moving away from belief in the magical. And I mean, obviously, they had for quite a long time understood that there were things that were real and things that weren't but there were um there was a specific move towards a kind of secularism that for me in this story the leviathan challenges um and that's quite reflective of where the 17th century was it was that kind of um divide between people who were moving towards more of an age of reason and people who were more um still believing in things that perhaps we don't accept today Yes, that comes through in the novel. I mean, it, it, it's split in time, but most of it is set in 1643, which was a, a turbulent time for England indeed. But as you say, there seems to be movement towards more enlightenment, more evidence-based thought. Yeah, I, I do think that's true. Um, I think that was a kind of a long progression out of more of a medieval worldview. And if you look at some of the maps of the world that existed um, in the medieval period, you will see massive sea creatures. You will see this idea of 
things that exist in the sea that we can't possibly comprehend because they literally didn't have any sort of zoological understanding so they didn't necessarily know the difference between sea creature whale shark etc so as they started moving towards a more scientific understanding of the world those myths were sidelined or sort of marginalized and i think that by the time the 17th century was well underway that that process was definitely underway but what i was looking to do with the novel was um was challenge that sort of rationalization if you like and of course this is in the middle of the civil war as well, Tom describes it as a land in chaos. It was. Um, they they had obviously religious and political differences in that society that led to an outbreak of conflict. Um, and I think that's one of the kind of modern resonances that people have pointed out um, to do with the novel, that obviously we live in a society now, which is quite riven with political conflict. Um, and at the same time, we're, we also live in a society where people believe in a certain level of reason and sort of scientific analysis but even so these chaotic things still happen and these conflicts still happen so I just thought it was a quite interesting area for um for exploration. An intellectually stimulating time and big ideas being discussed at all levels of society it seems. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that has to do or partly has to do with how far they came in terms of the printed word at that time. Um, So my inclusion of the character John Milton in the novel, for example, um, that was that had to do with the increased um, sort of prevalence of pamphleteering and political writing that took place around that time. Um, And it was a time when people almost like now were suddenly Um, not vulnerable if you like but suddenly they had access to a huge amount of information that they didn't have before and that tended to drive both conflict and change so the good and the bad Um, and I think that's probably also quite resonant with the way we feel now about things like the internet Um, and and those ideas definitely fed into the novel so we're living in a time of change. And you mentioned John Milton they're very brave of you to include uh, (laughs) not just a real life character but such an iconic character why did you decide to include him I think that with my um with my view to writing a book that was about the political and religious controversies of the time he's a very central figure in a lot of that um so his paradise lost um I always found quite interesting because it looked at um the figure of satan but it looked at him from a very surprisingly empathetic point of view considering that Milton was obviously such a religious man Um, and I thought that that was quite interesting in terms of looking at the conflict between good and evil but then the question of do we actually need that balance between good and evil in the world and that was something that I think Milton was trying to communicate um, in his writing and that's something that also comes across in the novel so thematically I thought he fitted in quite well. And how did you put words into his mouth? I mean, how did it feel doing that? Or or were you pulling stuff from letters and things that he'd written? So it it felt quite cheeky. (laughs) So it was something (laughs) that when I first decided to do it, I was very torn about because I thought, how can you possibly do justice to somebody with that sort of voice? Um, However, I am quite familiar with their diction and the way that they wrote and so on from the studies that I that I did when I was younger. So it was something that once I started doing, I was still thinking, is this going to work? And I wasn't quite sure. But once I started doing it, it seemed quite natural to the novel. It seemed to fit in. 
And it's a time when the patriarchy is alive and well, isn't it? Not just alive and well, absolutely thriving. And, um, uh, and women are suffering as a result of that. There's still a belief, though perhaps not as strong as earlier in the century, in witches and witchcraft and magic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so one of the, the things that I think surprised some readers about the novel was that I decided to write it from the point of view of a male protagonist, when, of course, it was such a time when women were so marginalised and the way that women were treated was obviously something that we would now regard as completely unacceptable. Where that came from for me was as a, as a sort of history student, or that's what I was, I wanted to reflect the way that things really were for, for the women. And at the same time, I wanted to reflect the way that a man might have been expected to take a very leading role in solving any crisis that came to him and his family. Um, and I think that when I when I was writing it, I was conscious that I was obviously, you know, did I do justice to the female characters? Did I do justice to the way that women were treated specifically um, with regards to beliefs in witchcraft? Um, I hope I did. And I think that that theme of patriarchy should come through the novel, regardless of the fact that the protagonist is a male, um, just to do with some of the other characters and the way that they behave um, and interact. I think you certainly did do justice to them. We'll come back to your main character in just a moment, Thomas Treadwater, but let's stay with that theme of magic uh, just for a moment and hear from Al McNichol. Al's debut novel, A Kind of Spark, was published in 2020. It won the Blue Peter Book Award and the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. Last year, her second novel, Show Us Who You Are, was chosen by The Observer as one of the top children's books of the year. Her third novel, Like a Charm, came out in February. It's the first instalment of a duology, and the bookseller described it as a nuanced and compelling story of self-discovery, bravery and familial bonds. I met her last month when she came to Waterstones in Cambridge to give a talk, and I asked her then to tell me more about the plot of the novel. It's about a young girl called Ramia who's 12 years old and she's got learning difficulties and she's having a bit of a, a rough time at school and one day she meets a mysterious stranger who tells her she can have a special, she has a special gift, she can see through glamour, meaning she can see magical hidden creatures in Edinburgh, my hometown, and uh, so she can see vampires in the library and she can see trolls in the pub and she can, you know, discover a whole other hidden world and these people need her help from an old enemy. So that's it in a little nutshell. <laughs> and as you say, Edinburgh, your hometown you live in London now what's it been like going back to Edinburgh oh it's been incredible it was so emotional going back to Edinburgh to launch this book and um, my first book a kind of spark was about Scotland in general and about villages outside of Edinburgh but um going back to Edinburgh for a book about my hometown has been amazing and it's so great seeing readers tracking down the sites from the book and taking pictures with Greyfriars Bobby for example and the grass market it's been amazing and what kind of um, age range is this book aimed at well, I like to say eight and older because I have a lot of adult readers who have absolutely no connection to children, but they love my books. So I don't put an upper age limit. I would say if you're eight and above or if you're a mature, younger reader, this is this is the age for you. And this idea of being able to see beyond in, in magical things is very appealing to any age group, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it was very much what I wanted to read when I was eight, nine, ten. It was what I was imagining at school in the playground and during um, maths lessons. So it's very much based on childhood imagination and, and the kind of books I really, really, really loved to read when I was younger. So I'm so glad that my readers get to come with me on this kind of fantasy magic journey now. <laughs> and your heroine, she's 
dyspraxic mm. and you've talked a lot in the past about promoting neurodiversity amongst your characters this is really important to you it is very important all my um, main characters in my books are neurodivergent meaning they're autistic or they have a learning difficulty and I believe it's very very important to represent them in books where they are the main character where they have agency where they make the decisions and where the books are about joy and about other things you know in this case it's magic and hidden creatures and the plot is not the disability um, I think it's really important and the reaction has been unbelievable I'm very 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 lucky. Is the publishing industry changing do you think to not just include more characters like this but see beyond the sort of you know quirky kooky elements of such characters? I definitely think so I really do I think it's going to be slow but um you know what's slow to build is long to last and I think it's it's going in a new direction and it's one that I'm very positive about yeah. And readers are just very open about such characters. Absolutely. Readers, booksellers and teachers and librarians have championed my books like no, I cannot believe how supportive they've been and they have been behind the change. They're the ones that have turned the tide and they really have been waiting for books that show disability in a really uh, dynamic, positive light and not just issue books. Um, So yeah, it's it's been incredible to watch the the change in the conversation in the last couple of years. And do you think we'll get to a stage, I mean I'm talking to you about this, but do you think we'll get to a stage where it's just in the characteristic, like she has red hair or wears glasses. Very much so. So very coded and very incidental. Yeah, I hope so, definitely. Um, you know, at the moment, I always clung to characters like Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables, and I thought, oh, she's like me, even though there was no labels used. Um, but yeah, I definitely hope so. I, I wish it wasn't a thing, so to speak. Um, I really hope we can get to that stage where all diversity and inclusivity is very incidental and not made into this sort of issue. <laughs> And you've got such success, Al. Um, you are a full-time writer now. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky that I can write full-time now um, and I spend a lot of time rushing off to school visits, which is the most fun part of the job because you get to meet the readers and the young children and when I get to say, I'm an autistic author, I'm a neurodivergent author, uh, I can see certain heads pop up in the room and they get very, very excited by that and I, it's really, really special and I'm very lucky, yes, that I write full-time. And is this the kind of genre and readership that you're aiming for continually? I think, I mean, all three of my books are three different genres, which is quite unusual, but the the brand and and the theme, I suppose, is neurodiversity. That is what the readers expect and it's what they get. Um, So I don't know where we'll go next. Well, I do. We're writing a sequel to this book. I do know where we're going next (laughs) is part two. But after that, who knows? Um, I think readers would be happy to go back to a kind of spark for a little bit and I would love to do that. But yeah, I'm always happy to explore all genres because children read all genres. They aren't as fixated maybe as some adult readers are. They really like to read widely and explore different, different landscapes. Tempted to write for adults? Oh, definitely. Yeah, more on that later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd love to. Definitely with um, some new, some more commercial, fun neurodiversity books are needed in the adult market. I definitely think. Yeah. And being a writer, is that something you'd always wanted to be? Absolutely. Yeah, I was. You know, I d- I had learning difficulties in school. I wasn't academic. I wasn't somebody that was very gifted <laughs> at, at school. But um, but I loved um, I loved writing. I loved creative writing. And I was never allowed to go see the authors visit when they came to school because I wasn't in the top sets. And now I get to go into schools as an author and show kids that like I was that they can be authors too. So it's it's yeah, it's been a full circle thing for me. I've always wanted to write, and it's a real real privilege to get to do it now. And what's your kind of day like? Do you have a structured day? I don't. I know I probably should. I know some writers say they get up at five in the morning, but um, I just try and write a thousand words a day on average. And if more comes, that's great. And usually it's a lot of um, answering letters and messages from people all over the world who... um, 
the books I've spoken to um, were coming out in the US at the moment and it's very, you know, it's a lot happening over there. And I'm also adapting my first book for television. It's been greenlit by the BBC, so I'm script writing and I'm consulting and I'm doing a lot of work around that as well, which is like a whole other job. Um, so it's, it's it, there's no um, kind of average day. Every day is very different. One day I'm working on the show or maybe I'm writing or maybe I'm at school, but every day is, is much better than the days where I used to do some really difficult, hard jobs. So I'm very, very lucky. And fantastic. Fantastic. And you're here in Cambridge at Waterstones to meet your readers. There are lots of excited readers downstairs. I've seen them already. And you talked about uh, having contact with people on email. It's important that you connect with your readers. Very, very much so. I think a lot of readers read my books and they feel a particular kind of need to continue the conversation, need to have a bit more dialogue about things. And I get long, long messages from people who want to tell me about their diagnosis, their journey, their start, their end, wherever they are, their children, their family, their parents. There's just so many people want to share their stories. Um, I think they felt they've had to be quiet up until now. So all my events um, yeah, have some really special moments with readers and it's the best part of the job, honestly. <laughs> And what's next for you? You sort of alluded to it there. Sequel to this? Yeah, I'm working on the sequel, which is very strange because I'm getting immediate feedback from the first one while I'm writing the second, and it's very strange. I'm like, oh, okay, people love this character. I'll keep them in. Um, so it's it's a lot at the moment, but um, it's lovely. It's really fun, and um, yeah, and again, I'm working on script writing. I've never written scripts before, and I'm very very <laughs> keen to learn. I'm, I'm taking advice from my showrunners and my fellow screenwriters, and we're just making the episodes as good as they can be for the BBC. We don't want to just to support the BBC, so I'm trying. Um, improve my script writing um, as I adapt my, my debut as well. And Like a Charm by Elle McNichol is published by Knights of Media. We're talking on Bookmark today to Rosie Andrews about her debut novel, The Leviathan. Rosie, uh, we were talking earlier about your central character there, Thomas Treadwell. We were saying the country's in a time of transition in this period. He is also in a time of transition, isn't he? He's a reluctant soldier. Uh, he's of the land-holding <clears throat> classes. He's having a, certainly when we meet him, a, a crisis of f- faith, is it fair to say? <laughs> yes, I think it is. He's having a bit of a nightmare, isn't he? So um, he's he's been injured in the English Civil War, and that's a conflict that he wound up fighting in because his father wanted him to go, rather than because he has a very strong view on either side of that conflict. Um, he found he finds the war very hard. He finds it reasonably difficult to understand why people have um why people have erupted into this sort of fighting. He's also, I think, um, he's quite young when the, the novel begins. And obviously the novel takes place along two timelines, one of, in one of which he's very young and in one of which he's quite old. Um, so it's also a kind of coming of age story. And it's about that process of self-understanding um, and getting to a, a stage where you know in a more confident way what you did in the past and, and how that's affected the world around you and what you're responsible for. So it's a yes, it's very much a story about um, a man whose life is in transition. And when you were putting him together, you obviously wanted him to have, have been a soldier. So he's he's seen the conflict. He's a, a slightly different class to the the people that he on the whole he interacts with or certainly his lives he changes I'm just wondering how you create a character you know which bits of life do you decide to give them good question um what I was looking for with Thomas was a kind of everyman figure I didn't want him to be too high in the social hierarchy um I didn't want him to be too low in the social hierarchy and the reason for that is I think that what we were talking about earlier, that process of people beginning to write and understand and um, 
spread knowledge was something that was very much happening within that sort of middle class uh, point in the early modern hierarchy of people of people. Um, and I say hierarchy, not because I think there should be one, but because they very much did. So Thomas is a person who's almost in the, the centre of that um, world. And it means that everything that happens around him is, you know, it's something he has to, he has to take on board a, a lot more as the as a kind of part of that. Um, I also wanted him to be somebody who was literate, which again, it's really important in terms of class because people in the early modern period, how much money you had was directly relevant to whether you could read or write. So I needed him to be in that sort of um, space, if you like. I wanted him to be someone who had the potential to consider religious issues, but wasn't necessarily too religious to begin with. And that sort of feeds into the gothic elements of the story where he needed to be a character who was doubting and as rational as possible given the time. So there are a lot of sort of moving parts around around the novel in terms of faith and politics and literacy. And I wanted him to be someone who could really sit in the middle of all that. Yes, gothic there. Uh, do, you, do you think of it as a gothic novel? Because when I saw that description by The Express, I thought, well, yes, of course, it is a gothic novel. And yet it feels so much more than that. It's got a bit of <laughs> magical realism. You know, it, mm. it, it seems more outward looking, brighter, if you like, even though it covers very dark issues than your average gothic novel. <laughs> um, yes, I did. I wanted it to have parts of it to be reminiscent of a gothic novel so one of the things um, that, I, that I just mentioned was I wanted it to begin from a, a doubting sort of rationalist perspective and where it went from there was um, more influenced by the mythologies and the kind of religious um, arguments of the time so the answer to that is I suppose yes and no um, I am a big fan of the gothic novel I think you're right that it does tend to have a more pessimistic view even though, as you say, The Leviathan does cover some fairly dark territory, I don't think it's an entirely hopeless story. Um, and some, obviously, some of the, the darker Gothic novels can veer more into that territory. And because it's told from Thomas's point of view, we see all the things that, that happen to him. Um, I think we're not giving too much away to say there's uh, <laughs> some possession that, that goes on there. Uh, from his point of view, he's reflecting on it. So we know that he's still around. Uh, but it's left to us as a reader to decide what we think. As in what was really going on? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that's also an important part of writing in any sort of Gothic tradition. There always, or there usually is, an element of ambiguity about what's presented to the reader. Um, and I think that is really important when it comes to um, both creating the effects that you want the reader to experience. There should be a kind of questioning what's going on um, type of, feeling but at the same time I think it's also important just because when we explore the world around us it's very hard sometimes to come to very um, definite answers about what's possible and what's not and so it was something that you know I as a as a writer wanted to try to to keep some things as open as possible in the story. Well let's see your second choice of music now which is Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd why this one? I said at the beginning of the show you know I'm not a very 
sort of systematic listener of music. But this particular song, I think it's, a, it's such a classic, isn't it? It's something that everybody, well, most people would have heard at some point. And I'd heard it many times, but I couldn't necessarily put my finger on which is one of the lyrics in the song, who wrote it and and why. And then I started doing a bit more research into why I liked it. And I think it's a kind of a very poetic piece when you look at the lyrics. It's about, or ostensibly about the sort of anaesthetizing of pain. And then when you go into it a bit more deeply, it's sort of about self-negation and dissociation from the self. And they're all really just very interesting themes. In addition to that, it's just such a beautiful, listenable piece, really. Hello. This is an urgent appeal from the Disasters Emergency Committee. Hundreds of thousands of people have fled their homes to escape conflict in Ukraine, leaving jobs, belongings and loved ones behind. To donate online, search DEC or text RADIO to 70150 to give £10. Thank you. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. And our featured guest on Bookmark today is Rosie Andrews talking about her debut novel, The Leviathan. Rosie, as we're saying, it's set in the uh, 17th century. Obviously, you're writing uh, as a writer in 2021, 2022, with the knowledge of what happens with regards to the Civil War and what happens with regards to witchcraft trials. How difficult is it to put that to the back of your head and not let it influence the narrative or give little clues that you know what's going to happen? I think I found that very hard. I think that um, one of the kind of jobs of a, a writer, particularly a writer writing historical fiction, is to try to put yourself in the shoes of the present as much as possible. And by the present, I mean their time um, and try to look at it from the perspective of just imagining that they don't know all that stuff. Um, and that's something that I didn't find too tricky, I think. And one of the major differences, I suppose, the extent to which religious debate influences the day-to-day lives of people. Mm, absolutely. I mean, obviously, in some parts of the world now, it's very much still a live um, politico-religious debate, if you like. So to what extent religion should dominate people's lives, to what extent should people be able to um, make choices that do not align with the choices of the majority. So, for example, Thomas's atheism um, would be something he just simply was not allowed to talk about at that time. Um, We, in our society, we don't really live in a a place where we have to do that anymore, but people do. Um, And I think it's a as much a relevant modern debate um, in some places as it was then. And what also struck me was obviously the lack of medical knowledge. I mean, there's illness everywhere, isn't there? Everybody has some sort of disfigurement and Mm. memories of the plague. Uh, Obviously reading this at a post-COVID time, were you writing it uh, during COVID? Yes, I was. So um, I actually was about halfway through the novel, I think, when the pandemic sort of began to be known and, and then when it took off um, and I think some of the parts of the novel that are about isolation can't possibly have been written without thinking about lockdown and having that in mind as I was writing so I have um, Thomas and Mary living together in 1703 um, very much not really seeing anybody and I think some of the 
their feelings about that probably sprang from my feelings about what was happening at the time. And that isolation leads to all this kind of paranoia as well. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. When you're not um, interacting with people regularly, it does change you and it does make you more susceptible to, um, you know, thinking things that you wouldn't think otherwise. And we should say this is all set in uh, not just Norfolk, but North Norfolk. Why did you set it there? What I needed for the novel was a place that was very isolated for the most part, um, so that the events could proceed without interruption. I think that, again, that's another sort of feature of of Gothic writing, isn't it? The isolation on the outside mirroring the kind of emotional isolation that the characters experience. Um, So I needed something there. And then given the history of the witchcraft trials in East Anglia, I also wanted to set it in that part of the world generally. Um, And then given the kind of twist that comes in with regards to the title, I needed something that was coastal. So I travelled up to Norfolk and had an absolutely wonderful time driving around there, looking at places and looking at all of their gorgeous history and um, was just inspired to go, yeah, this is absolutely the right place. Oh, well, thank you, Rosie. Well, uh, let's stay now in Norfolk, actually, and hear from DJ Taylor. DJ Taylor has written 12 novels, including Trespass and Derby Day, both long-listed for the Man Booker Prize. His non-fiction includes Orwell the Life, which won the 2003 Whitbread Prize for Biography. Stukey Blues, published last month, is a new short story collection rooted in Norfolk. Hilary Mantel said of it, in his solid, grounded, entertaining collection of stories, DJ Taylor draws out the mythical qualities of East Anglia's terrain, urban or rural or somewhere marginal in between. He expertly locates those moments in ordinary lives when reality seems to be curling at the edges. When I spoke to DJ Taylor, I started by asking him why he'd chosen Stukey Blues as the title for the collection. It's it's a play on words because um, Stukey Blues are what the locals call these curious blue pigmented cockles that uh, you know you can find in the salt marshes and down by the uh, down by the seashore, uh, and of course Stukey Blues is a state of melancholia, possibly to be associated with things going wrong in your life should you live in Stukey, which is what happens to the protagonist of the short story. So that's that's why I chose the title. I've always been fascinated by them. Stukey Blues. I mean, what a wonderful name! Fantastic name, isn't it? And um, this was a collection that was recently written. Very recently written. Um, in fact, it's very unusual, as, as you probably know, when, when a writer gets a collection of short stories together, they are usually the harvest or the gleanings of many years of writing short stories for odd publications. Or if you then produce a collection, it's a good excuse to sit down and write some sort of longer ones and, and paddle your own canoe a bit rather than reacting to some permission from the radio or a newspaper. I don't know if it's the state of the market or my... Uh, you know, my own incapacity. But the last time I published a short story collection, which was about seven years ago, it seemed to go quite well. And I thought, oh, you know, now I get some commissions to write some short stories, which I love doing. Nothing, not a commissioning <laughs> yet. And so <clears throat> about sort of autumn 2020, and I was between projects. My wife, Rachel Hoare, who's also a writer, said to me, you ought to sit down and write a few short stories. You love writing them. I said, OK, yeah, that's a great plan. And within four or five months, I had a 60,000-word short story collection, which just dumped itself on the page. And it was a great sort of surprise to me that there was clearly all this material in there just waiting to come out and get an airing. So it's a very 
gratifying, rewarding experience doing all those. And as you mentioned, you've written nonfiction, you've written novels, uh, short stories. Mm. They use different elements of your craft and your brain, I'm guessing. I'm quite fascinated, actually, what the short story is and what gives it its, its characteristic. Kingsley Amos used to say, I, I always thought quite disparagingly, that short stories were tips from the novelist's workbench. Little fragments that you can't accommodate in some longer work or, you know, little diversions that you go off on. I don't find that at all. I find them completely separate. And when I first started becoming interested in modern writing, when I was in my teens, interestingly enough, it was a time when the short story seemed to be acquiring an existence of its own again, instead of being a chip from the novelist's workbench. I mean, one of the very first short story collections I ever read was um, Ian McEwan's first Love Last Rights, which was published in 1975. And I thought to myself, you know, this is someone who thinks that the short story is a standalone form. It, he's not writing short stories because they're little bits of novels that went off in another direction. They're actual organic things. I've always thought that the short stories are a fundamentally different thing from the novel. I think if one were a pop musician, they'd be the equivalent of a three-minute single. You know, I'm old enough <laughs> to remember how important three-minute singles were when I was a child. And there is no room for padding. Every sentence, every word in a short story has to assist the forward march of the narrative. There's no room for reflection. I love that. I love the fact everything matters and the form being so important. It's a very disciplined way of writing then and editing, I'm guessing. It is because you're always conscious that is some little bit of foliage that obtrudes or isn't really to the purpose. Whereas in a novel, you know, I mean, how many times does one read a novel when a paragraph goes by and you think, well, it didn't really assist anything, did it? What's that really there for? But a short story, I mean, a really short one, you know, six or seven pages, it's an exercise in pure form. And do you think short stories are becoming more popular? I mean, this is a discussion, a topic that keeps coming around every three or four years, but I'm just wondering particularly post-pandemic, perhaps people's concentration spans have become more limited. Do you think now is the time? I wonder. You see, there's always been this prejudice against short fiction. When a short story writer approaches a short story as an individual thing, as an individual organism, and when the short story shapes up in its own right, then I think readers are interested. One of the problems is the lack of market for them. There are any number of online magazines printing short fiction. But beyond that, I mean, Radio 4 barely seems to cover them anymore. There's certainly no national newspaper that would print a short story. There are very few literary magazines these days that print short stories. And looking at the acknowledgements page of Stooky Blues, usually with a book like that, there'd be a whole page of, I would like to thank Wendy Smith, editor of the... Nothing. The only people thanked in the acknowledgement page of that book are the early readers and, and the publishers. There have been some very successful short stories. There's a, there's a wonderful book out at the moment by um, Wendy Erskine, who writes very good short stories. You know, when I first started writing, there were very, very few outlets. There were, there were one or two anthologies. You know, Penn used to do an anthology. There were Arts Council anthologies. I suppose there's a little bit more encouragement, but it's a very difficult market, short stories. And the theme for this collection, because the, for a collection rather than an anthology, there is a, a theme. The theme is landscape. It's landscape and the people who inhabited My very first novel that I wrote many, many, many years ago was called Great Eastern Land, which is my imaginative view of East Anglia, which to me is the great eastern land. Yeah, all these are set around. They're all set around here. I mean, they're all, to use that Norfolk phrase, they're all local. There are some faint autobiographical shadings. One or two of them relate to 
by childhood to the locales and the milieu around here. But they're all stories written under the wide brooding sky, you know, whether it's the Norfolk coast or whether it's getting on towards the fens beyond the Breckland into Cambridgeshire. A lot of them are set on the Norfolk, Suffolk, Norfolk, Cambridgeshire border. And in fact, one of the stories is actually called Somewhere Out There West of Thetford, which is the kind of debatable land that you get to if you head off in, in that direction. So, yes, they are all um, they all about the brooding landscapes. And I hope, you know, in some small way, drawing from a tradition of East Anglian literature, of which I'm particularly, I remember reading Graham Swift's Waterland when it first came out and thinking, yes, you know, he's really not that ordinary landscape out there. She's not very well known. I wish she were better known, but there's a Norfolk farmer's wife from the late 19th century called Mary Mann, who wrote these short stories set in the agricultural depression of the 1890s, which uh, in some ways have the edge on Hardy because they're terrible bleak terminus short stories but unlike Hardy you know in Test of the Durbervilles where there's that famous line that the, the president of the immortals had finished his sport with Tess which makes it personal you know fate is personal there's someone up there thinking I'm going to get you I don't like you and you've got it coming whereas with Merry Man awful things happen but it's what happens there's no malice of forethought I've always been very very struck by sort of ways of writing about Norfolk and East Anglia that seem to me sort of fruitful and relevant for the here and now because it's not a landscape that's universally popular, is it? I mean, it's very particular and it uh, perhaps creates a particular kind of person. Well, there's certainly a, it's that famous Noel Coward line, isn't it? Very flat, Norfolk. <laughs> and in fact, when I first met my wife, we used to spend time in Suffolk. It was, it was just so different from what I was used to because the Suffolk landscape goes up and down. You know, it's undulating, whereas Norfolk and Cambridge and Suffolk, it's such, it's such a huge acreage very very different i mean norfolk itself is 70 miles from one end to the other there are lots of variations in the way that the way the place is set out and um, and some of some parts of norfolk i find still amazingly obscure and recognized and off the beaten track i have this thing about where i come from that it's simultaneously entirely mundane and ordinary and yet at the same time the most extraordinary place in the world full of the most extraordinary people behaving in the most extraordinary ways which of course they think are entirely sort of ordinary and routine and that's one of the charms of it for me as an interloper to this area blow in as we would say yes, <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> what was interesting to me is the change in perspective rather mm. than looking for hills and seeing the beauty in hills seeing the beauty in the sky and also landscape which seems to go on indefinitely going down the April Strait to Great Yarmouth from Norwich and there comes a point where you're you're cruising along and on either side is just an endless horizon with an occasional windmill just rising to break monotony. You think, how long does this go on? It's like, do you know um, C.S. Lewis Narnia books? Mm. You expect to see Puddlegum and the Marsh Wiggles out there in their tents because it, it's just got that remote lost. Quite eerie as well. I mean, no, some, very, uh, oh, very. Waterland, it's yeah. no wonder. It's no wonder, too, that some of M.R. James's special stories are set on the coast. And of course, in Cambridgeshire as well, there is something very, very bleak. You know, the idea of looking back across the horizon and seeing something there that you can't quite locate might be a friend or a foe. And for you, what makes this collection different to previous collections? A, it's spontaneous. None of them were written to order. Nobody commissioned them. I just sat down and started writing them. B, because they're all set in East Anglia. They're all obviously tapping into some psychogeographic thing that I wasn't aware of. I mean, I've always been conscious of how much, you know, I mean, even when I, when I, I lived for years and years in London, if people said, you know, where do you come from? I'd always say, oh, I'm from Norfolk. So much more sort of meaningful than 
I'm from Putney or I'm from <laughs> Pimlico. You know, nobody really comes from Putney or Pimlico. They just sift vagrantly through them. And having done that, it's now made me really enthusiastic about writing about things that are nearer to hand than things that are further away. I mean, I've always been a great fan of Annie Prue's Wyoming stories. She does a very wonderful trick, which is to take something which is incredibly sort of down home and ordinary and hard scrabble and, and people just sort of living on these ranches and in these towns out in the American prairie states. And she makes them completely luminous and different and extraordinary. I thought to myself, you know, you can write about East Anglia like that. It's completely ordinary and banal and, and undifferentiated, the unseeing eye. And then if you look closely, there are some extraordinary things going on, which is very fertile fictional territory, I think. And Stukey Blues by DJ Taylor is published by Salt. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Rosie Andrews about her novel, The Leviathan, published by Raven Books. Uh, Rosie, I have to ask you, given uh, what we've been talking about in the title of your novel, do you believe in sea creatures like the Leviathan? (laughs) (laughs) I have had this question a couple of times. I can't really help but operate on two levels. It's kind of where my background has led me. I'm from a fairly religious family long term, going back into um, a sort of Catholic history. Equally, you know, I'm a kind of normal, rational member of society who doesn't usually believe in ghosts or the supernatural. But if someone said to me, is this thing completely impossible? I would always have to say no. I don't think anything is completely impossible. (laughs) So the answer is there are things we don't understand. There are things that we don't know about. You know, we are still learning. And you're saying uh, you're putting pressure on what you're writing next. What are you writing next? What is next for you? It's a 19th century Gothic novel. So it's again set in a relatively isolated rural place. This time it has a female protagonist and she is investigating the events surrounding her sister's death. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I've just finished one and I'm about to pick up another. So I'll go with the just finished, um, which is Wakenhurst by Michelle Parver or Paver, I'm not sure. Wakenhurst is gothic and I just thought it was an alarmingly good book and it's basically centred around this medieval judgment day picture which may or may not be the cause of some pretty spooky events in the fens so it's just a brilliant book. Thank you Rosie we'll come back to you in a moment for your last choice of music but a heads up that our next show featured guest is Melissa Fu talking about her debut novel Peach Blossom Spring. We'll also hear from Kathy Moore on the upcoming Cambridge Literary Festival and Claire Beasley will be chatting about her debut novel Waiting for the Winds to Change. But we'll sign out now, Rosie, with your last choice of music, which is The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics. Why this one? This is a a bit of an odd one. You know, it's not the sort of thing that I would say is um, a groundbreaking piece of music, but it is a nostalgic choice for me. It's one that my mum loved and used to play a lot. It has a kind of hymn-like quality for me when all of those harmonies pick up and also the lyrics. I think the themes of the song are really beautiful in terms of intergenerational conflict and misunderstandings which you know affect most of us i love listening to it and i find it quite an emotional listen every generation blames the one before 